Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To your top story, it is ECB Decision Day. In the next hour, President Draghi and the ECB set to announce cuts to growth and inflation forecasts. Investors waiting to see what policy options the Governing Council reaches for. Here in New York to discuss is David Rosenberg, Luskin Chef, Chief Economist and Strategist. Good morning to you, David. The first job of President Draghi today is to do what? Well, the question is going to be... um whether he's going to be uh, incremental and, and wait uh, till the uh, April ECB meeting uh, to really sound more forceful or whether he will do it today. Um, there's no question that there'll be some sort of shift in the rates guidance uh, in terms of, uh, you know, well, no leave rates on hold. Uh, you know, right now it's through the summer. I expect that he's going to say that rates will be on hold uh, through the end of uh, the year. Uh, and the question is really going to be um, what he says about the TLTRO program uh, to uh, help out the beleaguered banks, especially in Italy. And so the the question is really going to be not whether he's going to be dovish. Every central bank is turning more dovish right now. But uh, the question is going to be, is he going to wait till April to be more forceful or is he going to choose to be more incremental? So we're going to hear a lot about Teltros, I imagine, in the next couple of hours, the targeted long-term refinancing operations. This, to me, doesn't sound too stimulative. This seems to be about preventing a credit crunch from materializing more than stimulating the Eurozone economy. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this would be just a, a pure and simple insurance policy uh, against backstopping uh, the banking system. I think the other issue is going to be what, and this is really what's going to be critical, uh, because uh, certainly what the Eurozone could also use from a stimulus standpoint, considering how weak the manufacturing sector has been everywhere, uh, and especially even in Germany, um, is that they need a weaker euro. Uh, they need to shift their rates guidance. You see, this is what's happened, is that um, the Fed has already taken out whatever rate hikes were priced in several months ago. Uh, I think that the ECB has to change its rates guidance, uh, that um, that there are really no increases coming for the foreseeable future and not even put a timestamp on it like they've already done. The present rate guidance is totally redundant, isn't it, David? Well, I think that what you want to start doing is uh, is reinforcing the notion that uh, you know that the next move could actually even be an ease. Uh, Interesting. You, and so I, I think that um, I, I think that that's something that we have to consider. Uh, you got a central bank here. There's no doubt they're going to cut their growth forecasts, and not just their growth forecasts. But remember, it's a central bank with an inflation mandate, uh, and they're going to cut their inflation forecasts uh, before they've even reached their target. Uh, that actually says to me, as you know, as bizarre as that might sound, l- looking at how stimulative. ECB policy is that when you benchmark it against where we are in the cycle, uh, the level of the output gap and dis- disinflationary pressures, that uh, that perhaps the easing cycle there shouldn't be ending as quickly as it did. I mean, remember, they ended quantitative easing at the end of last yeah. year. Look, it might have been just a little bit too premature. David, some people have said this ECB and the governing council over the last few quarters has been incredibly complacent. We heard through the back half of last year that the slowdown would be temporary, that it would fade that things would bottom out. The slowdown bled into 2019 quite clearly. There are some signs in services and the labour market that things are stabilising. Is there a chance that the ECB focuses on that today and actually sees a reason to be patient and not do anything just yet? Uh, well, I think that would be a big mistake. Uh, and even people who are focusing on the service sector, PMI data in the United States, 
Uh, services are inherently sticky. They're not nearly as cyclical as the goods producing sector is. Manufacturing uh, globally and including Europe is in various uh, stages of disarray. Uh, services ultimately, and you talk about the labor market, uh, everything ultimately services the goods producing sector. Uh, and it's extremely weak. And I think that's what we focused on right now. And I said before, let's leave the economy aside. Uh, the truth is always in the price. If you're cutting your inflation targets, your inflation forecasts, and if inflation is below uh, your objectives, uh, the price numbers are telling you about the state of domestic demand. And so right there, I think that deserves a shift, well, uh, a big shift in the tone by the central bank today. David Rosenberg, no one but you owns the slicing and dicing of inflation. You've absolutely killed it maybe along with Gary Schilling on a low interest rate regime, a low inflation regime is is well. What do you say to the inflation optimists, not the inflationistas, but people that say we'll get a bid to price? Can we do that in an age of oversupply? Well, look, we, we just got the most up-to-date anecdotal information on, on what inflation looks like in the U.S. What's it look in, like? In yesterday's base book. Well, look, we are seeing some cost pressures, uh, partly from the tariffs, Partly from labor in the terms of uh, tight labor markets, of course, that's a lagging indicator. What did the Beige Book tell us yesterday? That companies increasingly are having trouble passing on their cost increases in the final prices. That tells me that if there's a concern about inflation, it's more on cost than it is on final prices. That tells me that we're going to have margin pressure. Maybe that's more of a problem for the stock market than it is uh, for anything else. But look, big picture, um, you know, we, we did have a modest inflation cycle this time. Core inflation bottomed at 0.6%. It peaked at 2.4%. Uh, I don't think most people realize that this was the lowest peak in core inflation in the United States in the post-World War II experience. And that includes the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Cleaver family of the 1950s. We've never seen core inflation peak at such a low level. Uh, despite everything we threw at it. Like, I'm, I'm still surprised people are talking about inflation. Uh, we threw two rounds of huge fiscal stimulus at the situation, uh, 0% interest rates uh, for the better part of seven yeah. or eight years, relentless quantitative easings, and, and the, the peak in core inflation was 2.4. Do you know there's no inflation for New York Islanders tickets? I mean, you and I could go see Canadians Islanders March 14th for half the price We'd see it at the Forum or the Madison Square Garden. Well, that's half the price to you, but I'm paying it in Canadian dollars, so you got to tack on 30% from me. Okay. Well, what's going to happen there? Unless, you you're, unless, you're, un to, unless you're treating. Can you know, well, you know, I'm treating. Can we do that, John? I don't know if we can. Maybe if we take you, it's called a mercy mission. That would be a great a, place a for you to see. Mission. That would be a great place for you to see a first hockey game. Seriously. Yeah. It's a it's a dump of an arena. They've redone it. I look but the sight to, lines I are look to die for. To you trying to expense it's like that. the old for expense it. Reto will pick it up. Reto keeper of the Amex. David, give us an update on the time we've got left with you on the chaos politically in your Canada. Uh well, look, I, I would say that uh it, it's a little overblown. Um and uh uh, you know, the situation with SNC-Lavalin from something that happened a decade ago and, and you know, the extent to which uh, the prime minister and his office, uh, you know, pressured the attorney general. Uh, I, I mean, this is actually, in many respects, um, par for the course as far as uh, government uh, Canada is concerned. It was basically, um, you know, the attorney general claiming that there was a lot of undue pressure on her, so yeah. on and so forth. Um I, I just think that the problem is more that uh, the prime minister, that Prime Minister Trudeau, you know, came in. Um, with a really squeaky clean image and um, and portrayed that and campaigned on it and and you know and so look you go back to Stephen Harper his big scandal was was if you remember it was the Mike Duffy affair which was right. a bit of a joke you know when you take a look at the U S and the stuff happening 
you know, in Washington. Uh, what's happening in Ottawa now is actually pales in comparison. Okay. But, you know, when you benchmark it once again right. against, you know, um, a squeaky clean See, image and all of a sudden there's a chink in the armor. And next thing you know, it's making front page you, news you globally. But it's, 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 it's I you're, would say, overblown. You're a Montreal Canadiens fan and somehow you get the Ottawa Senators worst in the world into it. David Rosenberg... Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it uh, this morning. With Gluskin Chef, important comments there is we go to what I thought would be a joke, John, and all of a sudden the ECB meeting is like the real deal. Right now, uh, William Lee with his Bill Lee of Milken Institute with his tour of duty at the International Monetary Fund and with Citigroup, of course, we can only speak about a record trade deficit back a solid 10, even 11 uh, years. Billy, I want to talk about the tariffs in the short time we've got with you this morning. Can we just eliminate the tariffs? Can China pull back tariffs? Can we pull back tariffs and basically start all over Tom, we have to because China desperately needs to boost its economy. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is to restore trade to where it was before because their experiment of trying to do fiscal policy right now may or may not work because they've never done fiscal policy without a lot of credit growth. So tariffs have to go down. As far as we're concerned, uh, uh, the farmers are suffering. And, and, and I think Trump's political base is one where the farmers and, and manufacturers have to feel right. reassured that job growth is there. I asked this of our Kevin Cirilli. Let me ask it of you. Do you see any indication in Washington that Mr. Trump and his political team will listen to Mr. Lighthizer, Mr. Kudlow, and the rest? Well, he's going to listen in a very careful sort of way because look at the sequence of negotiations he's done. He's allowed the farmers to get their deals. He's allowed the manufacturers to have their deals with some of the tariffs protecting them. But as far as intellectual property protection and, 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 and other more nasty parts of the trade discussion, he's letting that go. He's letting that slide. Why is that? Because that benefits Silicon Valley. And let's face it, he's not going to get the California electoral votes. So as far as helping his base is concerned, Trump, President Trump has done exactly the right thing in terms of sequencing what's important for them and allowing the rest of the, the deal to to gather momentum later on. Bill, this really concerns me. I think the administration has done a terrific job of getting the Chinese to come to the table. We're so close to getting some real concessions. Wouldn't be it be a massive wasted opportunity to focus on the trade balance and not address these bigger issues? Boy, John, I can't agree with you more. And, and you know, all this uh, discussion about Huawei, that's just the opening rounds in the war of intellectual property protection. Because let's face it, no one has faith in corporate governance in China. Yeah. ZTE is a great example of of. of having a company pay fines, put in uh, changes in structural changes in the board, and we don't believe them. What's going to happen with Huawei, especially in the world of 5G, where everything is equipment related and, and, and the, the, the probability of them sticking in spying material into those equipment in Europe and every place else, even here in rural U.S., is very, very high. There's, and those are the issues that need to be discussed. And Lighthizer is saying that maybe an enforcement mechanism comes along with more frequent discussions. Well, good luck on that. Bill, I think many people find this absolutely infuriating. The idea that Huawei is suing the U.S. government for barring its equipment from certain networks. If the U.S. had the same ability to do the same in China, can you imagine how many U.S. companies would be lining up 
suing the Chinese government to get access into China. <laughs> but try, try getting a try getting a, a judicial award in China for a U.S. company. Yeah. Uh, but but you're absolutely right. But this whole, as I said, this is just the opening rounds of that skirmish that we're going to see for years and years on how it is that we can protect intellectual property and security at the same time lower the cost. And 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 let's not forget Huawei and well, ZTE's uh, supply chain is but, intimately linked to the U.S. because when we shut off our suppliers to to those companies, they almost went bankrupt. To John's in insight that we're close to some kind of deal from where you sit bill is that true are we close to some kind of deal or are we going to do another hanoi that's the key tom uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm asking I, I i think he he can very well walk away right now because he's going to show he, he's he's got to he's got to have a solid political base and he's got to show that he's tough and he's willing to walk away from a bad deal what happens when he walks away the markets are going to collapse. <laughs> I think everyone has priced in some kind of a deal that, that if he were to actually walk away, I think he's better have some plan B in mind to be able to restore markets. Because otherwise, I think we could have a, a, a massive crash in, the, in all the global equity markets and, and other markets. I just think the way things are lined up, to go full circle yeah. to, to Bill's earlier comments, you hear more and more about the American farmer. It looks like a deal that's going to be centered around the trade balance, perhaps the purchase of more agricultural goods. And to your great point, Bill, it's going to be very, very difficult. If you want a quick deal, it's going to be very, very difficult to get the stuff that really matters, the structural issues, technology transfer, IP theft. What happens with trade representative Lighthizer if he doesn't get the deal that he wants? So I assume that there's going to be some people that walks away. Well, unless Trump starts to wave the flag of we have put in place a mechanism for enforcement, yeah. and, and that is yet to be done. I think if he starts waving that around, Lighthizer will yeah. stay to try to make that work. Billy, thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. Milken Institute today on our international economics. Joining us on the phone, Jeffrey's International Chief Financial Economist is joining us right now. Great to have you with us, sir, David. Uh, David, David walk, walk me through um, your first take, please. Well, I mean, the surprise to us is that they unveiled the uh, series of measures uh, today. We were expecting something either in April or uh, June. Obviously, we knew that the ECB was going to be uh, dovish, but we expected uh, the announcement of the package they announced today uh, to, be, to actually have been delayed to a, a future meet, meeting. I mean, the good thing is it's, it's all wrapped in together. And as you were saying a moment ago, it does rather tie the hand of uh, Mario Draghi's yeah. successor. But it's, but it's quite clear they're trying to engineer um, um, a much stronger Eurozone economy going forward. In particular, obviously, uh, the forward guidance on rates has been moved right. back, um, that they're going to keep rates at these levels until at least through the end of this year, uh, from the end of this summer previously. Secondly, they're obviously introducing uh, these other teltros for two years, uh, which is targeted to lending to non-financial corporations and to households. But in particular as well, these are at variable rates. So they're giving a clear fear that they do expect over the next two years or so rates to start rising. But David, this is important. You're with Jefferies, a a, a wonderful international firm. You were Dresdner Kleinward before, so you understand continental banking and continental central banking. Can they be optimistically preemptive? Is there any history that they can get out front of a slowdown in Europe? I, I observe no history where they've been able to do that. You're quite right, Tom, in the sense they, they have over the years uh, tended to lag developments. But um, exactly. I think um, in terms of the slowdown that we saw um, in the latter stages of last year in particular, it was very met, much led by the slowdown that we saw more generally in trade, 
um, also trade within the Eurozone itself, um, and also particular issues uh, like autos in Germany and the weakness more generally of consumer durable spending. If you look uh, at other elements of domestic demand, though, they've actually been picking up reasonably uh, strongly. And employment, again, was up in the fourth quarter of last year. Wage inflation continues uh, picking up. Wage inflation now in the Eurozone has picked up fairly decisively. And even uh, bank lending um, has picked up uh, pretty decisively in most countries, with the exception, of course, of Italy and Spain. And the Teltros were very much um, targeted, I think, at those two uh, sort of countries, particularly trying to uh, foster greater loan growth going forward. Now, the interesting thing I'd also add is the incoming um, ECB chief economist as of, um, as of May is uh, Philip Lane, uh, currently central bank governor of, uh, of Ireland. And he's very much uh, focused on imbalances, macroprudential policies. Um, and I think um, in this environment, there will be much more focus um, on actually heading off imbalances in a world where the ECB is still anchoring rates very much at the floor and trying to get bank lending growth going in all these other countries. Trying. I mean, you've got a situation at the moment yeah. where bank lending growth in, in Belgium and other financial corporations is growing at almost 10% year on year. Um, it's also very strong in Germany. It's pretty strong in France. Um, and, you know, ECB will be aware of these imbalances as they start developing. David, you mentioned the successor to Peter Pratt as the chief economist of the ECB. Let's talk about the successor of the president. Did President Draghi just tie the hands of his successor a little bit, at least for the first few quarters? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's, he's, um, he's uh, I mean, but what they would argue is that their, their guidance can change. So if we go through into the middle of this year, say June, and, you know, Indicators are now pointing better, and core inflation seems to be picking up some traction. The guidance from the ECB can change. Um, obviously, these Teltros are going to be in play now until March of 2023. Um, because, you know, but in that period, obviously, between now and the end of uh, 2012, uh, uh, 2022, they, they can, of course, uh, raise interest rates. Um, and, you know, rates could rise fairly significantly over the next two years anyway. But um, at the moment, we're still in this environment where they just want to anchor expectations, right. get bank lending going, help out Italian banks and Spanish banks to some degree, um, and achieve escape velocity in a way for the European okay. generally. I can ask you this because you're the Jeffrey, so I think you're not going to be jeopardized by your general counsel. Isn't all of this hinged on clearing commercial banking in Europe and do you see any indication, David Owen, that ECB and other regulators actually want to once and for all clear out troubled EU banking? Well, they certainly do. And obviously, at a, regulate, uh, at, a, at a national level and at a supranational level, they're trying to achieve that. Um, but it's very slow work in progress. And they're, they're working through all the issues in you know, every country has different issues. Um, the banking sector in general in the Eurozone, as you know, is, is very large. It's very uh, fragmented. Um, you yeah. know, very different banking models exist across countries. So you've got very different um, sort of profit margins um, for the same bank operating in different uh, regions of the Eurozone. Um, obviously, they're trying to move it to, you know, a one-stop one banking sector, as you have in the U.S., in a sense, and we have here in the U.K., um, but they're starting out from where they are. It's, um, yeah. it's, it's only work in progress. And obviously, non-performing loans remain an issue in some countries. Very large balance sheets um, still remain an issue right. in others. Uh, some of these banks well, are still very large. Let's leave it there. David Owen, thank you so much with Jeffrey's. Thanks, there. David. We appreciate that uh, today.
Well, Sweeney and I are going to digress right now. We've been watching Europe blow up, and maybe we'll fold that into our discussion. But right now, the woman who gives us more mail on technical analysis than anyone breathing, and that would be Louise Yamada. She is definitive in the courage to look at long-term charts. Louise, I want to look back after the historic moment known as December, January, and February in November, what did your long-term charts say about all that volatility coming? Well, we had been cautious for several months before the December drop. So the longer-term monthly momentum went negative in October. So that was a warning, among other indicators, that suggested <sighs> things weren't quite ready to continue to move up. Okay, and then you enjoyed it. Did you load the boat December 26th? I mean, did no, you walk we didn't. any? You didn't? No, we didn't, I'm sorry to say. But um, we, we prefer to wait and see what the right. longer-term indicators tell us. And to be honest with you, they're still on a sell, believe it or not. And now the uh, daily momentum has moved into a sell. So that allowed us to at least suggest here that we're going to have some kind of a pullback. We did a schematic of a big W, sort of similar to what happened in the fall of last year. Um, if we were to come down maybe 7% up and down, you'd have a consolidation that would give you a, uh, a configuration that then might support new highs if, in fact, the market is going to choose to do that. Uh, but if we don't hold with a 7% pullback, then we may be looking at something a little more severe. I think it's a very selective market out there, and a lot of the advancing statistics um, yeah. could be the same stocks going higher and higher. I mean, look at a Xilinx. It just keeps going up and up and up, and yet you have practically all the energy stocks that are nothing more than right. kickbacks into resistance. Mm. So, Luis, what are, you know, given that you're still cautious, what are the main contributors to, that you look at, the main charts, the main data points that you look at that keep you a little bit on the sidelines? It's mainly the monthly, uh, monthly momentum sell. If we go back to 2015, 2016, uh, we got our sell signal prior to the actual declines, and it remained negative through the test of the low, and then until we were just about to lift through resistance, we got the buy signal. So basically, having sold and then bought at the same price, you you eliminated all that agita in the middle. <laughs> and uh, agita, Paul, is CFA. CFA. Institute. <laughs> Well, Louise, yeah. how level about Yamada. You take one, two, three, and you get then them. you take level Yamada. Right. <laughs> so, Louise, if I, if I still want to buy stocks and you're, you're telling me to be cautious here in the U.S., are there some international markets that maybe uh, look better from, from your perspective? Uh, well, Switzerland certainly has been doing better than any of the other European area uh, markets. And, of course, you've gotten the lift in uh, Shanghai in the uh, China market. Um, most of the foreign markets that we follow have run into resistance here, and I think it's going to be a question of how they navigate it. Um, most of them remain on monthly sell signals, so we watch carefully. And it's yeah. very selective what we've essentially said to clients is if you're going to play a stock that breaks out, just keep right. raising your trailing stop loss. Anytime Luis Yamada shows up, I get the email, okay, all this chit-chat's fine. Just ask her about gold. <laughs> now, we now have, Louise, fundamental types talking up gold. I'll cite Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs. You are a gold bull, right? 
we have been more constructive on gold. I don't want to necessarily say a gold bull, but we did go more positive on gold over the past couple of months. Okay, what's the why here? And to go back to Yamada's speak, is it because you're seeing distribution that's constructive? Uh, no, it's because we we're seeing um, what might have be defined as perhaps a five-year base going back to, let's see, yeah. the low was probably to 2015, and you've got a few years of consolidation on the downside to the left and yeah. a few years of consolidation on the upside to the right. Yeah. Um, we would have liked to have seen this move closer to 1400, but it was through yeah. 1400 that we would need to have seen. We haven't seen it yet, but you're still within yeah. the short-term uptrend. That's a classic Louisa Mata there with a five-year base. The day traders over at TD Ameritrade are going, wait, <laughs> right. I can't work with that. <laughs> I can't make money on that today. So Louise, how about on the currency side? Tom and I, we continue to be amazed at the, the strength of the dollar. Where, where, where do you think investors should be looking uh, in the currency markets? Well, they've been pretty flat until today with uh, Draghi's speech, where the euro now looks like it's about to break down. Could yeah, break down. one twelve thirty eight new weakness. Yeah, if it closes here, it's a breakdown. Um, and the dollar has been, you know, thwarting both the bulls and the bears, um, and in a rather flat, slightly uptrending pattern. And that looks better and better. If you get out through ninety eight, you could probably see a hundred again. But we've been there before. We were there in twenty sixteen. We were there. Yeah close to it in 2015 so it's all within the pattern of the last four years louise one more question i want to wrap this up for all of our audience are you suggesting then with the new weakness and a seven percent correction that we are within a bull market or do you state that we've had a bull run within a longer term bear market which is it we're on the fence we (laughs) want to see we are definitely on the fence those long-term rich who booked her louise is on the fence Right, it's Riley's no, fault. Okay, Riley I from think... St. We're on the fence. Mm-hmm. We are. We want to see the monthly momentum turn to a buy signal, and then we'll be a little bit yeah. more comfortable with what we're seeing. It's been too long, Luigi Mata. Thank you so much for being with us, and I think that all of you know with my technical analysis, uh, Louise and I are decidedly on the same page, Paul Sweeney, and that people do not look enough at weekly, monthly, and quarterly charts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.